0: Welcome to Inside Jackson Station. The band you hear in the background is the Glenn Phillips Band, playing in 1984 at June Fest in Atlanta. In just a moment, you'll be hearing from Dan Harrison, the author of Live at Jackson Station, a book that chronicles the history of the iconic blues bar in Hodges, South Carolina. Dan will be joining... Glenn in a moment to talk about Glenn's experiences in the Hampton Grease Band, in the Glenn Phillips Band, and in the Supreme Court, playing all over the South and around the world, including at Jackson Station. We'll pick up with that conversation shortly, but before we do that, let's listen to a little bit more of the Glenn Phillips Band from 1984, around the time when Jackson Station was really starting to hum. Thanks for listening.
1: Hi, this is Dan Harrison, author of Live at Jackson Station. Welcome to Inside Jackson Station. This episode features Glenn Phillips, an amazing guitarist who came of age with the Bruce Hampton Grease Band in Georgia in the 1960s and has had a solo career from the 1970s onward. Glenn Phillips, has also played with the Supreme Court, which is a cooperative venture that he founded with Jeff Calder of the Swimming Pool Cues. He has had many interesting experiences as a professional musician, and he has met John Lennon, Yoko Ono, played with Frank Zappa, and uh, also the Grateful Dead. I hope you enjoy this interview. Welcome to another installment of Inside Jackson Station, the show where we take you behind the scenes at the iconic Hodges South Carolina Blues Bar and speak to the artists and musicians who played there. With me today, we have Glenn Phillips, a founding member of the Hampton Grease Band and current member of the Supreme Court. Glenn, how are you doing today? And welcome to Inside Jackson
2: Station. It's great to be here and I appreciate you having me. I loved your book, by Jackson Station, which I really felt captured it perfectly. And having known Gerald and Steve, I just wish they could have been alive to have read the book because I know how much it would have meant to them and I know they would have been in tears at the end of it because it was such an, a moving portrayal of what it was about, what they were about, and captured it perfectly.
1: Thank you so much. And it's a real thrill for me to be speaking to you in person today. You were one of the first people who I spoke to about Jackson station, it was seven years ago, actually, you, you know, provided some amazing details about the place. And I believe you played there about 15 times from 1983 to, to 1990, both with your own band, the Glenn Phillips band, and also with Jeff Calder's, your joint effort, the Supreme court. But before we talk about Jackson Station, I'd like to ask you a few questions about your biography and, and your background and how you got into music. You were a transplant to the South. I believe you were born in Springfield, Massachusetts and right. moved down to Atlanta when you were a kid. Maybe we could begin by telling us a little bit about how that transition was for you as a kid to move from Massachusetts to the South and, and what the South was like from your vantage point, how it struck you when you got to Atlanta, and how you became interested in music.
2: I lived in various places in New England. I was born in Massachusetts, lived right outside of Newport, Rhode Island, Connecticut, lived even in New York for a while. When I came down here when I was 12, I was confronted with a lot of things that I was completely unaccustomed to. I had never encountered bigotry in my life. It wasn't part of my family, but neither of my parents were like that. And I don't want to imply that there wasn't any bigotry up north, but I think it wasn't worn as a badge of honor the way it was in the South when I moved here. It was 1962. And so things like the N-word, anti-Jewish, anti-Catholic, even the word Yankee being used as a slur in reference to myself. Those were things I was completely unaware of. And this isn't to castigate South and say that it was a bad experience. I have lots of fond memories of coming down here and lots of people that I'm still close friends with today. But that was an intense experience for me, just being completely unfamiliar with it. And I took me, well, to this day, still something that I go back and read about. The history of the South, I find myself reading lots of things and then pulled out of the history books over the years and going back and reading and trying to understand, comprehend what that was about and what it was rooted in.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so you became interested in music once you got to the Atlanta area. And I believe that your brother had an acoustic guitar and you picked up the acoustic guitar one day. And you hit the strings and your life was forever changed.
2: My brother was just a guy who, I guess you consider a musicologist. It wasn't any technical term. He was about four years older than me, but he just had a deep interest in music and collecting records that led to him becoming a manager of a very small music store in Northeast Atlanta. To my knowledge, it was the first really truly independent record store In Atlanta, it was just called Northside Music, but we all referred to it as Charlie's Record Store. He worked there part-time at first, and then his enthusiasm about records and things, the owner ended up seeing that was boosting sales. So just had him become the manager of the store and gave him complete autonomy to order whatever he wanted. So all of these records that were coming out... In the 60s, blues albums, jazz albums, bands that later became household names, but weren't at the time, like The Doors, the Butterfield Blues Band. He would order all these records before anybody in the South knew what they were. And it was a musical education, not just for me and the other members of the Hampton Grease Band, but for an entire community. A lot of bands later went on to become very popular in the Atlanta area, literally formed in this little tiny record store and it was a a result of our interest in this music that was at the time considered underground and non-mainstream at all yeah now
1: i believe that you took some music lessons when you were a kid as well
2: when i first started playing guitar i was 16 when i picked it up and i did have this feeling like this is what i'm going to do for the rest of my life just i hit the strings and i felt the body vibrating against my body And I just started, I I just played guitar all the time. So I got proficient at a fast rate and people were asking me for lessons on basic things at that time. I had one friend whose mother was a piano teacher and I gave him guitar lessons so that she'd give me piano lessons to learn music theory or not really to learn piano, but I wanted to understand how everything fit together. And I started combining that with going. the library and getting music books and music theory was not as commonplace in culture back then as it is today Mm -hmm. and so i had to go in different avenues to discover that stuff that's great and
1: so you co-founded the hampton Grease band in was it 60 we started in
2: 67
1: 67
2: Uh, and and it was more or less one of these bands that was formed around charlie's record store we all got to know each other and hung around with each other in this record store talking about music we love. I was the youngest guy in the band at the time. The other guys were four or five years old they were friends of Charlie's, but also became friends of mine through him. Yeah. And that's where the, the nucleus of the band was put together.
1: Now, how would you describe the Hampton Grease Band to someone who is unfamiliar with their sound? It really was a whole scene associated with the band. Yes. It's a very participatory culture, from what I gather.
2: Well, yes. A lot of this stuff just evolved out of happenstance. What people know the band for now, we put out a, a double album in 1970 that came out on Columbia Records. And the music was very complex, very out of the mainstream. Sort of absurdist in some respects too, was it not? Well, the the guitarist and I wrote all the songs. The other guitarist, Harold Kelly and I, it was a two guitar band and we both wrote all the material and the lyrics involved all sorts of random found art objects without us even knowing what the concept of found art was. Bruce Hampton, who was our singer, was a great Performer. He was a natural performance artist, but he really was not motivated to write songs. So Harold and I would write these long involved songs that frequently didn't have lyrics. I think in one case, for instance, Bruce picked up a can of spray paint, started reading the instructions on the can of spray paint, and that became the lyrics. I had a 20-minute song called Halifax with all these long involved parts very intricate and the band worked on it for a long time to get it together and then it suddenly dawned on me when we finished that there was nothing to sing so i pulled an encyclopedia off the wall opened it to a random page and said just sing this and pulling lines out of the encyclopedia about halifax and making them rhyme that fit the melody of the song and then harold also had a he wasn't just a great guitar player he was a great artist he did the cover to the album. And he was also a linguist. He just had a way with language and turning words around and spinning them around to where they were, in some sense, nonsense and abstract, and in other senses, redefining words. And so he would start doing that and putting that in the songs. So, between us all, that became the collective consciousness of the band, but not by design, just by happenstance. Yeah. And by the fact that we were all in Harold's basement of his mom's house, just having the time of our lives. It was a clubhouse yeah. for a, a bunch of introverted, out-of-the-norm teenagers.
0: Yeah. Just to jump in, here's a little bit of sound from Halifax to give you a sense of what Glenn and Dan are talking about. Wouldn't
1: took it out of the clubhouse and you went down to a place called Piedmont Park.
2: Yes, there was, at the time in the South, uh, the clubs where bands were playing, for the most part, were cover bands. And we were doing original material and having trouble finding a home and where to play. So I went down to Piedmont Park and there was a pavilion there with an outlet. And I took a clock radio down there and plugged it in and it worked. So I went back to the band and said, look, we can just go play at the park because people were hanging around down there, but there was no music. And we just started setting up on the lawn at the time and just playing. And there was an explosion of young kids, hippie kids hanging out there and they just gather around us and This scene grew and we played there every week. And within a year of doing that, we started doing it in the spring of 68 by 69. The Almond Brothers called us and asked us, can we come play there with you? And the Grateful Dead came and played with us. And there was a whole scene of great Atlanta bands that were playing there as well, which I went into Chakra, Strange Brew Hydra, just a long list of great bands. The thing that was both difficult for bands breaking out of Atlanta was the music business at that time was located in York and California. And it was really a a wasteland we were cut off from any sort of outlet for that being in Atlanta at that time that's not the case today but it was then
0: yeah
2: but that also created an Alice in Wonderland environment of seclusion where we were just completely removed from a lot of competitive pressures and it created this great scene between the bands and the audiences you know I have some friends that were in those bands at that time That lament not being more successful. And I always say to them, don't you realize we are a success story? Think of everybody in those bands that made it. Yeah. Most of them were dead. They got incredibly successful. They got involved in a a lot of hard drugs. This scene was like a fairy tale to be part of. And and you
1: never blew the breaker or anything? You must've had a ton of amps and a lot of wattage going through this. It did
2: get more involved as it got to be more bands, more things, it did get more involved and it did eventually get to the point where people would have to get permits or do things. But that first summer that we played there, 68, we just kept going down and plugging into the out. Yeah. And then other bands started coming down, but as it got bigger and bigger, and these gigantic crowds started gathering. Yes, it did get more involved.
1: And I understand that you saw Bob Dylan play in 1965 at the yes. uh, Municipal Auditorium. And this like, was on his uh, Like a Rolling Stone tour. And in your memoir, you describe that as being almost a, a life-changing moment for you, too.
2: Well, yes, I was very much, through my brother, I had become aware of all the records that led up to that. And I was a big fan, as obviously was happening to a lot of people. So seeing him there live for me was a very big deal. What was that show like? Can you have any specific memories of it? Yes, it was his first electric tour. And I'm sure you're aware of the history of that tour where he Mm -hmm. was going to places and people were bullying him. But in Atlanta, throughout my life, whenever people ask me about that, I just always tell them, I don't remember anyone in Atlanta bullying
1: him. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it was like a, this concert at the Municipal Auditorium and the audience was into it and polite and there was no booing. And I read an interview with Dylan not long ago, sometime within the last five years, and they were talking about that tour and everybody bullying him. And Dylan said, they didn't boo in Atlanta. So <laughs> the recollection was correct. And that was not the case in Atlanta. But it it was everywhere else. When I lived in Middletown, Rhode Island, which was right outside of Newport, and I talk about this in the book because it was a thing that had a big impact on me. I was there, me in Newport, for the first two folk festivals, and I didn't go to the folk festivals, I was a very young kid, but. The culture, it was my first experience to seeing an alternative culture because the city would be flooded with what were at the time thought of as beatniks, yeah. but which evolved into the hippie scene. And it was a combination of folkies and beatniks. Even though I didn't hear the music there, I didn't hear Dylan there when he was playing I was exposed to this culture and I look back and remember that it had an impact on me, uh, that I, it's difficult to even verbalize, but seeing a world outside of the world that your parents exist in and that you perceive of culture existing did have an impact on me. That's great.
1: And I believe you also saw Jimi Hendrix play in Atlanta too. Yes.
2: Um, I saw him play at the municipal auditorium as well. And that had a big impact on me because I would go to these various shows at the municipal auditorium, and they were either white or black shows for the most part. They'd be pretty much an all white audience at the Dylan concert with all white artists, or I'd go to rhythm and blues shows because I was really into, into blues and rhythm and blues, and those would be majority a black audience. And the thing that was unique about that Hendrix show when he came here, it was very early on in his career and it was mostly predominantly all white kids and there were three other bands on the bill and they were all white bands. Pretty much the only black in the room was Hendrix and he was the headliner. And both musically and culturally, it was a defining event. You could see things were starting to change. And then two years after that, he headlined at the second Atlanta Pop Festival, which the Hampton Grease Band played at as well. That's how we got signed to Columbia. And he was headlining the festival. And at the time, the governor of, the, of Georgia was Western Maddox, who was a right. uh, confirmed avowed uh, racist yeah. who, who came to fame because he had a restaurant and he chased out coloreds with an axe handle, carved his restaurant. And he handed out his axe handle to other white patrons. Okay. So it was a collision of these, this sort of wall, that I had entered into in the South that I was getting, and I'm still to this day, getting an education on.
1: Yeah,
2: It was a, a sea change.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So how was it when the Grateful Dead came to town? One of my musical heroes is Jerry Garcia. How was it playing with Jerry? How did Jerry Garcia strike you as an individual and a musician?
2: I was a big fan of the bands as well. And although their music, I would say, was not as off the beaten path as the Grease Band, I very much identified with the Grateful Dead in terms of their musical adventureness and, and experimentation. Lyrically, they obviously made much more coherent sense than we did. But I did very much identify and relate to them. That was a, a big deal. When they played at the park, the first time when we did that show in 69 was when the live dead album came out with right. rick stark yeah and those records had a tremendous impact on me sure. and sure. were a big influence so it, it was a big deal and later we played at a show at a place called the sports arena which was a small place and although they were not at, at the level of success that they became in later years they were clearly iconic figures within right. the new nu- musical and hippie community cool
1: one other uh, i think fascinating anecdote in your memoir is when you talk about seeing John Lennon and Yoko Ono at the Fillmore East, I believe it was in 71. And right. you mentioned how John Lennon just exuded this musicality. Yes. It, it was very interesting to me because I've always thought of John Lennon as being a very political guy and, and a very witty guy, very humorous guy. I think when many people think of, of the Beatles and the guitar work, uh, people might say that, that George Harrison was perhaps a little bit more of a sophisticated player than 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 John was. Well, it's very interesting uh, for me to read that. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you meant by that and what struck you about the musicality that, that came out of John Lennon as as you saw him?
2: To set the scene, we were friends with Frank Zapp and, and we were opening up for the Mothers of Invention. And... Frank had asked me to give him a guitar lesson on picking technique, because Frank, he told me, so said, I play fast notes. I tend to do the slurs, meaning pulling strings off. So I was up at Frank's wall playing with him and jamming with him and showing things about picking. When John and Yoko showed up, they were going to sit in with the mothers. And so they came in and started talking. And I was just struck with their personalities. Even before they got on stage, that John seemed very at ease with himself. Mm-hmm. And I guess he had dealt with fame, but he just seemed way past it, whereas Yoko seemed very much wanting attention, wanting yeah. fame. And that experience in the dressing room also was the same way when they took the stage. So John got up and performed, and it seemed very much off the cuff and not prepared. They hadn't rehearsed or done anything prior to right you know he just showed up and they went down and came out played and it was a big deal but i was struck by john's ability to just walk in and just come off totally as himself yeah and he seemed like a powerful musical presence always to me when i was a kid watching the beatles whereas yoko seemed like it was more of a look at me sort of thing right now somebody else might see it and see it totally different i know she has her fans, and people who, who love what she did. But I do know what you're saying about John not being a flashy guitar player. Right. But if you think about his music, and for, really for that matter, George really wasn't a flashy guitarist either. What their chemistry was about in the Beatles, and you can hear, is their connection with each other. Mm-hmm. And that's at its core what makes music, what makes movie music. Is it like this or is it like this? It doesn't matter if you have 10 guys who are all great musicians, if this doesn't happen. And with the Beatles, every time they play that happened, it was like this, it was like glue, all fitting together like a perfect puzzle. And when John just walked up on stage and played with them, I noticed he just did the same thing, just naturally. It wasn't like looking around what's going on. It's just fitting in and being so comfortable with yourself and intuitively relating to the environment around you. When I play with musicians at all, have had lots of musicians in the band over the years, I always have to get them to stop thinking about the technicality of the song or if it's complex and to just sit there and clap their hands to it Mm. and to feel that and connected to it. And I do tell them all, if you do that, everything you play will be right. If you don't do it, nothing you play will be right. Interesting. And although John Lennon isn't a guy who's sitting there reading scores, yeah, this was something he always did intuitively. And that's why his music was so powerful and connected with so many people.
1: That's amazing. Here we are now in, in the early 70s. And you take a hiatus from the Hampton Grease Band, or where the band splits up. The know. band broke up in '73, and and then you record an album and 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 get signed by Virgin Records. Yes, correct. And and you develop a a relationship with a fairly well known figure by the name of, of Richard Branson, and you become fairly close with him. I, I think most listeners will probably recognize the name Richard Branson. You, you tell an interesting story where. I think this was maybe was it your second album that you were recording for him when he shows up in Atlanta and and he wants to see how everything is going and you basically don't allow him into the recording session or or you meet him at the meet him at the door. And-
2: what it was was the first album I did. I recorded at home alone on my own and I released it by myself. But it became big in England. It became a, a a big seller in England. Virgin Records at that time. You know, had just barely become a label; they were mainly a record store, so they kept ordering this album from me to sell in England. It had come in second on a readers' poll, a Melody Maker's readers' poll, of records that, that the fans in England wanted released in the UK. Back then, there was a yep. thing with imports, so that's what led to him signing and becoming a Virgin artist to make the second record. And he wanted me to come to England and record it recession musicians. And I didn't want to do it to my own detriment commercially, but to my benefit artistically, I've always been very driven to just make records unencumbered by how marketable they are or art. So he went along with it. He was a very lovable, great guy. I had a great experience. But. Obviously they wanted to know what was going on. And at this point on the second album, they were investing a bunch of money and paid for yep. the studio time. So they did come to Atlanta and we hung out and he was at my house. It was a little tiny two-row duplex apartment. And I would play him tapes and things. I don't want to make it sound like it's confrontational. Sure. I would play tapes, but I did not want to go in the studio with Richard or with any producer for that matter.
1: Because you wanted to protect the integrity of your...
2: your Yes, I I yes. And look, this ultimately led to me getting dropped from the label, and I understand why. But my intention with music has always been to let things out and follow what you're feeling driven to do. I, I came from an alcoholic household. My parents were both alcoholics. My dad ended up killing himself. There were things inside myself that I needed to work through. Mm -hmm. And for me, music was a way to work through that. Even if the level of success was diminished, the level of what I got from doing this and pursuing it like this personally was invaluable. And it led to me eventually working out issues and having the life that I wanted to lead and putting things in perspective about my parents and what they were going through. But I really felt like the creative process aided immeasurably in doing that. And that was more valuable than if I had a record on the charts. Yeah.
1: yeah. I I really applaud just how candid you are in the book when you talk about all of these tragedies and situations that you had to face throughout your life. It's very moving. Your sound is, is quite unique, and I'm not the first one, obviously, to comment on that. But you seem to have a distinctive style as a guitar player it just sounds different how would you differentiate your guitar sound from that of other famous guitarists
2: this isn't to say that i didn't enjoy and was affected by lots of other guitarists because i was but what i was always drawn to is people that seem to be following their own voice finding their own sound meaning finding your voice the same way When you talk or when Mm -hmm. you write, we don't think about this when we're having a conversation, but we all have our own recognizable rhythm of speaking Mm -hmm. and talking and texture and tone to our voice. And we all have these uh, internal feelings that drive it. It changes when you're tense, it changes when you're relaxed. Uh, If you're laughing, the way you talk and your rhythm is different than if you're scared to death. And so I just tried to always follow. What was emotionally driving okay. this in songwriting and in playing music. Now I was influenced by lots of things that I can hear come up in the music. When I first started playing, we were discovering blues music and, and blues guitar mm. and this kind of raw emotionalism in it. And at the same time, I was very affected by soundtrack music. When I was growing up, soundtrack music was in a way the avenue for that generation's classical composers. I was driving around the car yesterday, listening to my CDs of the soundtracks, Elmer Bernstein soundtracks to The Great Escape and The Magnificent Seven, which I know by heart, I know every note, everything that's going to happen in them. I still listen to those television shows. You think about theme songs from when we were a kid. I just had the contact within the last few years with The Sun. Of the guy who wrote the soundtrack to the TV show The Rifler. It was Herschel Burt Gilbert and I love the soundtrack to that. Yeah. And I got the soundtrack music from the song, who has released it. And I know all that music in my head just it's part of the soundtrack to my life. West Side story. Yeah. Uh, when I one of the first songs I wrote that was on the Hampton Grease band was called Maria, and I titled that as a tribute to to West Side Story. The song has nothing to do with West Side Story. It doesn't sound like it at all, but those things had an impact. So all this music that I loved and heard when I was growing up, I do think had an influence and an impact on me. But the driving thing when I'm writing songs or recording my guitar is, does it seem emotionally honest? Interesting. At that moment. And that's what's produced. What I think of as my best music. And my worst music, But I had to follow that path to get to a point where I felt okay with myself, understood my life, myself, and my past.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Paul McCartney,
1: I think, has spoken of the the songwriting process. He he sometimes describes it almost as if the song is just in the ether somewhere and just manages to pull it down. Is that a similar experience to you?
2: The initial emotional feeling and outpouring is something that happens very spontaneously. What I would do is, it is just uh, record lots of demo tapes of just songs that i just sit in my room, playing guitar or keyboard, singing a melody or something over. And then I put them aside and I would go back and listen to them months later. And the ones that emotionally move me are the ones I pursue. And then once I pursued them, it did become oftentimes a very long, sometimes it would take years for me to get a song to where I felt like that's it, Mm -hmm. that's right. But it had to be, that's it, that's right, in terms of getting this initial emotional feeling out and defining it somehow musically. It might not make sense to somebody else, but it did to me. And when that would happen, I describe music as being like opening up doors inside of you that you didn't even know existed. Mm -hmm. And that's what would happen. I, I would pursue these songs, and when I knew they were right, just things opened up inside about my life and about my past and about things that I didn't emotionally or intellectually understand. And somehow that shed light on. And that's how I knew when the guitar solo was right or when the song was right. And that's why at its core, when I said to Richard, look, uh, I've got some tapes, so I can play some stuff, but I didn't want people in the studio going, do this, do that, because he wanted to sell records. And if he hadn't, he wouldn't be the guy that he is, and he wouldn't have done all the good in the world that he did. Mm -hmm. He's done an enormous amount of good. He's incredibly tried to help with climate change, with lots of things in life, do constructive things with his money. I was just A screwed up musician trying to work, make sense of his life. Yeah. And I had to stay on that path to get there. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the 80s. Let's talk a little bit about your experience at
1: Jackson Station. I believe you played there in 1983, 15 times from 83 until 1990. I'm wondering if you remember how you first heard about Jackson Station. And I, I... Know that a lot of the gigs in, in the early days were spread through word of mouth. Yes. I'm guessing that's what happened uh, with you. Exactly.
2: Cues played there first, maybe, was that? Yes. Jeff told me about it and we okay. would o- always tell each other about clubs that we play because we were traveling up and down the East Coast or traveling to places and we were always looking, all the bands, looking for connecting jobs. If you wanted to go up north to play, which... And ironically, New England ended up being the stopping grounds for the band. Where I grew up was where we were the most popular in America. And so we would want to f- connect dates. And Jeff told me about Jackson station. So that's what led me there. And as for Jackson station itself, you had a thing in your book where you compared it to the TARDS or Doctor Who's TARD, right. which was could travel through time. And that was the most perfect analogy anybody could have come up with to describe that claw and that's what it was like for me i had never thought of it that way till you said it when you said it it just all rang true in my head because when we drive from atlanta to jackson station you were driving through the old south yep not even the south of 1980 you were driving in some cases through the south of 1930 1940 in terms of attitude about things, about a lot of these things that I talked about. You know, we learn language as kids from hearing things from our parents. Yeah. And it's not just language. We learn attitudes and we learn uh, perspective about things. So a lot of these perspectives and things from the old South that when I came through though I was saying with Joel to me, this was these people's lives mm-hmm. and their parents got it from their parents. And so there was lots of bigotry in the South. There was lots of great things about it, but those things existed. But when you walked into Jackson station, it was walking in the TARDIS and you were transported to a time in the future where those things didn't exist. That's great. And it was amazing because you'd walk out of the building and there you were back again, but in that building, they created this environment where everyone was accepted. There was an enormous amount of anti-gay prejudice in the South, but not in Jackson station Yeah, outside of Jackson station. Yes. But when you walk in that building, everybody loved Gerald and Steve. Everyone knew they were gay. And it reminds me when I think about what it was like then. It reminds me of what it's like now living in my neighborhood where finally gays are accepted and we have gay neighbors and they all intermingle with all of us and the other families. There's no thought of, oh, we're going to accept them. It's just they're accepted, just like you accept anything. That's what happened in Jackson Station. These people were all your neighbors.
1: One of the best quotes from when we spoke seven years ago, and I put this in the book, is when you describe Jackson Station as being part. Circus, part church, part diner. And I I think that really captures the essence of the place so well. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on the the circus and maybe the church-like atmosphere. Well,
2: I think there were a lot of things going on there at the same time. And I think all of this was driven from Gerald and Steve, And just like me talking about wanting music to come up, things uh, that I had to understand truths about myself, about my life, and then coming up a piece at a time, Gerald and Steve to me had those things from growing up in the South, being gay, dealing with prejudice, bigotry, uh, ridicule, I'm sure, had these things inside of them Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: they came out The same way I was talking about making music Mm -hmm. and what's right because of you can see it and you feel it when it's right. That's what they did with Jackson Station. There was a way they wanted things to be. And obviously they were not in charge of the world, Mm -hmm. but they did become in charge of that space, that one building. And they created an environment in there, and they kept it going and kept working on it and kept meeting people and talking to people and experimenting with bands to come in until they knew they had it right. And they did get it right. I know it had a sad, tragic ending with what happened to Gerald, Mm. but those guys accomplished something culturally and artistically fully realized inside the walls of that building.
1: And you were part of it completely. It it wouldn't have been possible without the musicians. The
2: thing that's amazing about the music was how open and accepting they were. It started off, for the most part, for blues acts, Mm -hmm. which was great because that was the culture of Black America being expressed, and that was the voice of that world, and they created a home for it. There are a lot of clubs that you will, would come across over the years, That this is strictly a blues club, and this is strictly this club, work punk club, where this, what they had in there, the, the swimming pool queues certainly were a blues band. Right. We weren't a blues band. Yeah. I mean, most of the times I played there was with my own band doing all instrumental guitar-oriented music. Wow. And yeah. they kept hiring us over and over again. And I'm going in and I'm looking at the other names on the bills, great bands, but most of them were blues acts. And I'm going, God bless him for having us in this place, but I can't imagine why he's booking us. He booked us because there was an open-mindedness and a desire to open up boundaries and stretch the conception of where things existed at that time in that world.
1: You're exactly right. Not only did they have amazing blues acts there, but they had some incredible, what we would call new wave or progressive or kind of yeah. alternative bands too. Yes. Jackson Station was known for its late hours. I'm imagining you played there until four or five in the morning. Yes. Uh, Routine late. And uh, it's a bar. So you're going to have a, a lot of people inebriated and, and drunk and consuming alcohol. Nice. I, I'm wondering, cause, uh, because you're not a drinker, for reasons which you explain in the book, was it somewhat difficult for you to play at a place like Jackson Station when all the fans, when so many of them were were so inebriated late into the morning? Or is that just part of the job?
2: To me, it, it wasn't different. Like I said, I grew up in an alcoholic family. My parents were, and I love my parents dearly, and I have fond incredibly fond memories of both of them but they were alcoholics so i grew up in an alcoholic household and while it led to me making the decision to never drink in my life or do drugs recognizing a a family history and seeing the impact on their lives i love my parents very much Mm -hmm. i'm sure from reading the book there's a lot of funny Fond memory stories of my mother, who was a riot when she was drunk. My mother quit drinking. I remember her telling me, I've quit drinking. I said, I'm really happy for you. And she said, I know those years were rough for you. And I said, honestly, mom, my fondest memories of you most of the time is when you were loaded, and she said, that's very sweet. of And she was very funny and her personality came out, Harold Kelly who was the guitarist in the Grease Band. I had this incredibly close musical relationship. He ended up dying of alcoholism. I've always thought of myself as an alcoholic who's never drank. And so I identified with what was going on. I never felt uncomfortable there. Mm -hmm. I always embraced the environment there. Obviously, when something crosses the line to the point with what happened with Gerald dying, And so that that sort of incident happened, obviously at that point, but as far as hanging around drunk people, having fun, I have incredibly fond memories of my youth, Mm -hmm. along with the ones that were troubling, but also fond ones and incredibly fond memories of Jackson station. For me, the, the big memory was getting the equipment out at five in the morning with a room full of drunk people who I loved playing for them and I loved being around them, but it's a long building. Yeah. stage was on one end and the door was on this end. So as musicians we had to get our equipment out and go through this room, this long room filled with people drinking heavily yeah. and get through them. And I was a wrestler in high school. So for me, when you're wrestling, you're like constantly watching people, barbing and leaving, going around things. It was like a wrestling match, going through the crowd with the equipment. And and to this day, I can still work my way through a crowd faster than anybody I know. And I attribute that to my root practices at Jackson Station. And you know how to give somebody a knowledge and just move all over without hurting them. But it, it was quite a loadout experience, different than any other club I've ever played in my life.
1: Yeah, that's great. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what's going on with you now musically and, and professionally and and then maybe also if you could give any advice to aspiring mm. guitar players or musicians you know i i fear with the digital world that we're living in that people will uh only be making music on their iphones or their ipad i i, I take it you're still playing i'm guessing you've been shut down the last year because of covid are you getting yeah. back out On the road, are you going to do some more live shows, any
2: new albums in the works? Obviously, we haven't been playing through COVID and we have yet to play. I certainly am thinking about when we should do it and how we should do it Mm -hmm. and trying to feel that out the same way everybody is, and looking to see what happens if we're able to get to the point where we reach some kind of herd immunity, where it makes it safe. I'm not just worried about the safety of myself and the band, but also the audience. Right. More predominantly because they're sitting in a group of people. So sitting, wondering about that, reading, uh, and trying to stay on top of what's happening with it day by day. So there's things I don't have the answers to. I think it's getting closer to where we'll probably get out, play. And I've talked to some people about it, both in the band and people in the audience and the clubs, but it, it is a work it out as you go along sort of situation, I haven't been recording the book that I put out. The memoir also came out with a new album and a live DVD. It's interesting you're talking about digital recording, because I still record everything on tape, analog, mm-hmm. all the albums have been recorded on tape. All, on the other side of that, every studio that still had tape machines and analog equipment that I've recorded in, all, over the course of my life, including that last one is now closed really well they've all gone out of business because it's expensive to keep a place like that up and nobody's recording like that anymore everybody records digitally in their homes and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that for my music it's a tough hump to get over because to me cranked up guitars don't sound the same way at all recorded digitally as they do recorded analog so for certain types of music it's really suited for my type of music it's not suited and i'm not sure where it's going to go from this point yeah you know i was lucky to get the book out right before the pandemic hit Mm -hmm. and that with the album and that dvd which people if people are interested in it they can go to my website it's glennphillips.com glenn with two n's and they can read about it there and get it but uh at this point i'm not sure where things are going to go they're definitely going in a different direction. That's not real suited to a lot of the music that we, you're talking about the Grateful Dead, I don't know that those records and that music would have had the impact and had it all been recorded digitally. Oh no! There's
1: actually a great Grateful Dead documentary which you can check out on, I believe it's Amazon, and and they they spend a lot of time talking about how the live experience was so important as well. Right. Any advice for uh, aspiring guitarists? Or I, I take it that you probably play every
2: day. Yes, I have a, a, a regimen that you do, or is well, like... it's not a regimen. I just, I do it. There's things I like to do. Yeah. And I do them for fun. I like to exercise, so right. I exercise a lot. I love to play guitar, I, so I play guitar every day. I love hanging out with my wife. Yeah. We hang out all the time, and I have fun whenever we. We take a lot, the dog on lots of walks. It's it's in that classification of things that I do just because I still love doing. It. Right, and I feel very lucky to have that. But as far as musicians today, I just I think it's important to make a decision on where you want this journey to take you. If you get on the road, you look at a roadmap, to see where you're going to go. One way may take a little longer, but you want to go there because you can sightsee. The yep. other way will get there quicker. There's nothing wrong with people wanting to be as successful as they can be doing music and making music that is market-driven and doing that. But to just decide if that is in fact what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Are you doing this to see how popular you can become? or how much you can understand about yourself, about your life. And when you enter into any kind of pursuit, those are questions we all have to ask ourselves along the way, every step of the way.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Do I want to do this to be successful? Or am I going to make the decision to be the most successful or the most true to myself and to what it is that I want to do?
1: Wow. That's really amazing. And I think that's, A really great way to end this conversation, Glenn. It's been a real pleasure. I don't know if you have any questions for me. Like like I said, I'd really enjoy talking to you. I
2: I have one quick question. As I mentioned, I really loved your book. And I was curious after reading it, because you really put your heart and soul into it and a lot of work and time researching it. What was it that led you to, to have the desire to do that?
1: Obviously, it was a labor of love. I, I never went to Jackson Station myself, but I have had similar experiences to what I think people had at Jackson Station in in other places in my life. I went to a new college, which was the Honors College in Florida. We used to have these things called palm court parties on the weekends where people would bring out the school stereo and play music, and oftentimes right. it would be up at at five o'clock in the morning. And there was just a a sense of freedom and kind of liberty there. And and I think you get something similar at live shows. There's a great quote in the book where I mentioned Carlos Santana talking about how music can take away fear. And I think that that was one of of the functions, so to speak at Jackson Station, It, it provided people with a safe, protective place, a scene to go and live, but it was basically talking to people like you and and, and Jeff about their experiences at Jackson station it convinced me that it was such a special place, thinking of it in terms of their role in, in, in the careers of a lot of the musicians, I mentioned widespread panic in the book, obviously and oh. Jackie Brown, whose career was resurrected because of his relationship with Bob Margolin and Gerald. And obviously also the tragic nature of of the end of it, was it a hate crime or not a hate, you know, I'll leave it up to readers to make that determination. Two gay guys running a crazy blues club in the middle of nowhere, South Carolina. I think what really drew me to the story was all of the interweaving elements to it. And, And that, that's what made it so special.
2: It was special, and it did come across, really. Yeah. yeah. Very heartfelt, and I know for writing a a book myself, to crawl down that hole and follow her all the way through is a real undertaking, and it, it has to be driven by something, and what you explained really makes sense. Thank you. Thanks so much, Glenn. Thank you. Really appreciate it.
0: And with that, that will bring us to conclusion of this episode of Inside Jackson Station. We hope you enjoyed. To take us out, we're going to listen to a little bit more of the Hampton Grease Band singing Halifax. Glenn Phillips, thanks for listening. Wooden.